You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. And the problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccine. The health system perpetuates gender inequalities and restrictive gender norms. This stigma, shame, and fear is what drives this disease and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against malaria, polio, HIV AIDS, the opioids epidemic, some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. Immunization is by far the best buy in public health. It dramatically reduces disease and mortality and the economic and human costs that go along with it. And it gives children a chance to grow up healthy, go to school and reach their full potential. But over the last decade, our progress has stalled. In some places, we've gone backwards. We need a new approach to finish the job and increase coverage from 85% to 100%. Welcome to the Take As Directed podcast. I'm Catherine Bliss, Senior Fellow with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. On September 27, 2019, the Center hosted a conference focused on securing healthy populations in a new era of global immunization. The conference explored many of the issues highlighted in the remarks you just heard from Henrietta Four, Executive Director of UNICEF. In today's episode, I will walk you through some of the day's main themes to illuminate the challenges global immunization programs face as they develop new strategies for the next decade of work. Two experts leading the development of these new strategies joined an opening panel discussion with Nellie Bristol, Senior Fellow at the Center. As Nellie noted, Immunization is a miraculous and vital health intervention that should be accessible to and trusted by all. With this new energy globally toward UHC and primary health care and new immunization strategies in the works, it feels as though we're entering a dynamic and potentially eventful period in global immunization. Kate O'Brien, Director of Immunization, Vaccines, and Biologicals at the World Health Organization, explained how the process for developing the proposed Immunization Agenda 2030, which is expected to be approved by member countries at the next World Health Assembly in 2020, has differed from that of its predecessor, the Global Vaccine Action Plan, or GVAP. We are learning from the success of GVAP and the limitations of GVAP, where we were unable to achieve what was aspired to in in GVAP. And so this bottom-up co-creation, which has been the heart of IA 2030, tailoring to the country context, really adapting to changing needs. It is not WHO's vision and strategy. It is all of our vision and strategy. And I think as deeply as it can be owned by all organizations, that's where the success is going to come in. Seth Berkeley, CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which promotes the availability and uptake of new and underutilized vaccines in eligible lower- and lower-middle-income countries, delivered an overview of Gavi's new five-year strategy, Gavi 5.0. He explained how the new strategy, with its emphasis on equity, refines previous Gavi strategies to address obstacles to increasing global immunization coverage, 
particularly in countries where high fertility rates lead to large new cohorts of children requiring vaccines each year. We keep reaching more and more children every year. The challenge is that population is continuing to grow, and particularly as countries transition out, the countries that are left behind have high fertility rates, high growth rates. We're keeping up with that, but we're not exceeding that. I don't want to underestimate the degree of difficulty that we're going to have to do, because there is a reason why people are left behind in immunization. Two-thirds of the zero-dose children are living below the poverty line, and they tend to be clustered. So what we want to do is shift our focus to finding those pockets of low coverage. Gavi 5.0 and Immunization Agenda 2030 were designed to be complementary, addressing many of the same concerns around leadership, community empowerment, and service integration that emerged over the last decade. As Kate O'Brien and Seth Berkeley emphasize, these strategies are meant to stimulate country-focused processes that will allow national immunization systems to adapt their programming to best address local needs and priorities. We don't have a one-size-fits-all solution. The very first element is to really have an understanding in that specific area what the impediments are. Is it about leadership? Is it about funding? Is it about a supply chain? Is it about demand? Is yes. it about access? <laughs> is it, and, and which of those things comes first? Mm-hmm. Right. So you can't start trying to accentuate demand of the community unless you actually have services there for them to go and get. I think it is even more critical now that we align and integrate. If we can bring them into the immunization system, you put a health worker, that female health worker isn't just going to do immunization. You also bring in a surveillance, you bring in a supply chain. So we see this as core to the agenda of prevention and core to a resilient primary health care system, which frankly is core to everything we do. The next session examined lessons learned in reaching difficult-to-access children and families with immunization services. Amanda Glassman, Executive Vice President and Senior Fellow with the Center for Global Development, articulated several additional challenges in the quest to ensure equitable access to immunizations in low- and middle-income countries. Full vaccination for age is still too low in too many places. In Pakistan, measles vaccination is less than 65% on average. In Nigeria, less than 40% of kids are fully vaccinated for age. And then the equity issue is likewise very stark. A country like Ethiopia, Addis has 90% vaccination coverage, whereas a municipality like Afar has 15%. So that's a huge discrepancy in terms of the vaccination program's performance. So what's going on? Yolani Batres, former Minister of Health from Honduras, who has also served on the Gavi board, shared insights from the country's experience with the Mesoamerica Initiative, a performance-based challenge grant involving Mexico, several of the Central American countries, and the Inter-American Development Bank, among other organizations. She observed that support from the initiative enabled Honduras to better integrate immunizations within health services and enhance the overall impact of the nation's health system. In Honduras, Salud Mes America is very integrated. It reintegrates vaccines, integrates prenatal care, integrates the health workers too. And one of the things that I like most, that we're very proud of it, 
is that all the health workers feel that they own this. And the local governments, they are empowered with knowledges. The ownership, I think, is the best thing that we have. Mohamed Pate, Global Director for Health, Nutrition, and Population at the World Bank and Director of the Global Financing Facility, stress the importance of ensuring that these international programs are deeply rooted in country health systems. If we put governments at the center in a true sense of that word, starting with their ownership of the agenda and aligning our support, prioritizing with them, but using the delivery mechanism that builds their capacity in the long run, that's how we'll reach at portions of the country and where there are gaps or in conflict-affected areas to use alternate channels or mechanisms to do that Mm -hmm. without undermining the government systems. Yes, government capacity in many areas is weak, but it is not going to get stronger if we always bypass it. The United States government has long supported global immunization programs. Carrie Peltzman, Deputy Assistant Administrator in the Bureau for Global Health at the U.S. Agency for International Development, joined the panel to explain how U.S. agencies use their strong bilateral partnerships and relationships on the ground to help strengthen national immunization systems. An organization like USAID, one of our strengths is that we have a presence in that country and often stay for decades, and so we're able to engage at the national level and convene and work Mm -hmm. with the other donors and with the country government at the national level, the subnational, the regional, or the district or community level, and those municipal governments Mm -hmm. and build that trust that is so crucial. These community relationships and a sense of local ownership are only built up by sustained efforts over time. Here's Anne Shuket, Principal Deputy Director at the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Our strategy globally is very much being side-by-side with ministries of health around the world. CDC has work in over 50 countries, not all immunization. But we think that these long-trusted relationships with ministries of health and through WHO, UNICEF, we can build relationships that are there in peacetimes and can be helpful when there are challenges. Our workforce is really passionate about equity and about being there for the long haul. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people think of us as, you know, parachuting in for an outbreak, but I think really we want to be there before, during, and after the crisis. One challenge countries face is ensuring sustained funding for immunizations while meeting the funding needs of other critical health priorities. Mohamed Pate, Kerry Peltzman, and Anne Shukat offered closing thoughts on how engaging partners across the government and across society is critical for securing continued funding for immunization programs in the long term. I think to deal with financing for health generally, you have to really get the ministers of finance. It's a whole-of-government approach that will deliver this. The World Bank, the Global Fund, Gavi, USAID, the USG, CDC, we're all at the table together with the country governments, involving the ministries of finance as well. I think I'll go back to the point I've made earlier about the private sector engagement and how we can leverage and tap into those resources. One thing that the community really needs to think through long term is how do you sustain demand, sustain value? So when the Minister of Finance is looking at the lines and you, you know, for years you've had the line that was procuring vaccine, that's something you're not willing to cut. So I, I think we as a community have that real challenge with showing what's invisible Mm -hmm. of all the lives that we're Mm -hmm. saving by these routine programs. 
Congressman Adam Schiff, representative for California's 28th District, introduced the next panel, focused on vaccine hesitancy and faltering trust in immunization. Unfortunately, vaccines are a victim of their own success. These monumental public health achievements have contributed to a false perception that disease threats are minimal and that routine vaccination is no longer necessary. Over the years, I've met with some of my constituents who hold deeply antagonistic views towards vaccinations. But the scientific and medical consensus is unequivocally in favor of the efficacy and safety of vaccines. Public health officials must take necessary and critical steps to flip the script from vaccine hesitancy to vaccine confidence. Vaccine hesitancy is a rapidly evolving phenomenon that is both multifaceted and still not very well understood. Steve Morrison, senior vice president at CSIS and director of the Global Health Policy Center, noted that restoring trust in vaccines will require the input of a wide variety of experts. What we're seeing is very fast-moving. It's dangerous. It's complicated. Public health has a terribly important role to play, but it's also essential that we reach outside of public health discipline in order to understand what's going on. Emily Karafalakis, a research fellow with the Vaccine Confidence Project at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, described the project's analysis regarding how social media use has created space for online discussions regarding vaccine use and safety. Trust can be really decreased very quickly. So this volatility of confidence what we found is mostly impacted, or at least partly impacted, by emotions and the spread of emotions. Emotions are not an individual factor. They can really be spread and are really contagious in groups. Vaccination is not a linear process. It's more, as I said, of a volatile decision. And why this is important is because social media, in a way, has changed the dynamics between science and patients and the general public. So we need to look at how ourselves we can take advantage of that, make them more informed about the dangers of social media so that they can understand how they can look at differences between what's fake information, what's real, basically bringing patients closer to science. David Braniatowski, associate professor at George Washington University, is an expert on how online messaging against vaccines fits into a broader digital landscape in which discussion about vaccines is manipulated by some actors to exacerbate social divisions and deepen polarization of opinion. When you see messages about vaccines on social media, they may not really be about vaccines. What I mean by that is that there are a range of different hidden agendas underlying why people, or in some cases automated accounts, may actually be sending messages that on their surface seem to be related to the vaccine debate. In short, we found that Russian trolls were 22 times more likely to talk about vaccines than the average Twitter user. Although they were tweeting and spreading both pro-vaccine and anti-vaccine content, there was a common theme, which was that these tweets were primarily about disrupting trust. While hesitancy is a global issue, speakers emphasized that it is important to work locally with community members to increase trust in vaccines on the ground. Rena Day, communication director for the core group Polio Project in India, shared what she has learned over decades spent mobilizing community volunteers to improve local trust in public health programs. 
Our polio program started in 1995, but the house-to-house vaccination started in 1999, and that's where we really, really encountered stiff resistance from the community. And that showed us that we got to do something very differently. Why? Because community believed that it was a birth control program and different polio vaccines for use for different communities. So we had to shift from instructive to negotiation approach. We built the capacity of our volunteers, of our vaccinators, that how to negotiate with the community, with the families. And we really invested time and gave opportunities for them to ask questions related to immunization. Why eradication? Why do I need to immunize my child at certain intervals? Even as vaccines are increasingly politicized and the debate escalates on social media, our panelists suggested that there are different policy levers that can be used to restore community trust in immunization initiatives. We have tried at the local level. We brought immunization into the agenda of politicians, that how beneficial it is for you if you show that your area has achieved this much immunization coverage and you get benefit of your constituency. Building resilience for the future, that also means building the next healthcare professionals and the next GPs and the next pediatricians and making sure that they're trained not only in how to have communication with their patients in terms of how to respond to vaccine hesitancy, but also how themselves can get on social media. There are going to be different strategies that work for different platforms because of the technologies involved. Twitter, for example, is very prone to and given to bot-automated content because of its peer-to-peer structure. Facebook is much more of a hierarchical structure where a lot of the misinformation is spread within groups. And so there are different policy levers and different strategies that may be implemented depending on the platform. And I think our approach has to be nuanced and has to take the technology into account as well as the psychology and the social forces. During the final session of the day, panelists discussed the challenge of delivering immunization services in contexts considered fragile, including conflicts, emergencies, and humanitarian crises. Immunization activities in these highly disordered contexts are complicated by unique challenges that exacerbate the issues of equity, trust, and hesitancy that were discussed throughout the rest of the day. Nahid Badalia, medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit at the Boston University School of Medicine, opened the session by sharing her experience working on the ground during the 2014 Ebola outbreak and what lessons that work taught her about trust, access, and the importance of quality data. I specifically work with emerging infectious diseases, those that are not yet vaccine preventable or have just had a vaccine introduced. We're still learning about these diseases. As a clinician who took care of patients here in West Africa, I can tell you the first 100 patients I took care of, I learned, I literally learned from those 100 patients to apply that to the next 100 patients. These are diseases where the importance of research, the importance of gathering information and interpreting that in a timely manner in the middle of an outbreak becomes super important. Coordination with actors across society is critical during an outbreak response. Rebecca Martin, director of the CDC's Center for Global Health, discussed some of the ways the agency has worked to strengthen countries' immunization frameworks and better prepare actors across the health system for outbreak scenarios. 
How do you make sure that you're training nationals, training people in the communities to be able to do this work? Those are people who will be there forever and people who can go into areas where people who from outside a country or from outside an area cannot go. One of the things we have worked with WHO on in the global polio eradication has been the stop transmission of polio teams. And normally these have been international and surveillance people trained to go in and to work in areas at the subnational level. But what we saw in Nigeria Nigeria is we still, because of security issues, could not send international people to Borno and to Kano at the time as well. And so the recognition is we needed to build the national stop teams, and they had to be from the country. And this has now expanded into South Sudan and into Uganda as well. Considering the multiple global health funding replenishments underway over the next year, including the global fund replenishment, the polio pledging moment, and the Gavi replenishment, among others, Violaine Mitchell, Interim Director of Vaccine Delivery at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, emphasized how these global partnerships have reimagined what is possible in global health and immunization. When I think back, and we can talk about, as Seth said today, 700 million vaccinated through Gavi. We can talk about 200 million bed nets distributed through Global Fund. And those are really incredible. But to me, there's actually a story that I think sometimes we forget. In the year 2000 with Gavi, many developing countries really weren't interested in taking up new vaccines, not because they didn't want them, but because they honestly thought, we're just going to have to wait 40 years. And over the course of this last 20 years, we've seen this incredible level of ambition change, where we saw Sierra Leone and Canada introduce the pneumococcal 13 vaccine within months of each other. When HPV was licensed, Rwanda was among the first countries to introduce. It happened because of an incredible sense of partnership and ownership and everybody really pulling together. In conflict settings where state institutions are fragile or non-existent, mobilizing and deploying resources for routine services, not to mention outbreak response, can be difficult. Nahid Badalia and Violaine Mitchell explained how delays in receiving critical resources can slow the delivery of vaccines in emergency settings, and they shared their recommendations for improving accountability and efficiencies in releasing funding to respond to crises. It's always later than you think on the ground. When I was in West Africa in August 2014, it was the dearth of resources was immense. And even as the public health emergency of international concern was declared, and when I got back in November, the resources were still not on the ground. What I think is a challenge is also looking at the absorptive capacity in countries, and which is actually when you start talking about flexibilities, it's just not about putting more money into the same systems necessarily. I think beyond just saying state actors, non-state actors, how funds flow? Are we really on top of how finances flow to countries in a way that we can be? The session closed by considering how to transfer lessons learned in the deployment of emergency programs to routine immunization delivery so that the capacity built in outbreak settings is not lost once the crisis response ends. Here's Rebecca Martin from the CDC. If we don't address these disordered populations or areas, we can see what's happening in eastern Congo. Ebola is one outbreak. There is measles. There is circulating vaccine-derived poliovirus. There is cholera. These areas have not been reached. People are not getting their antiretrovirals for HIV. Malaria. It's really important we see what happens if we don't reach these areas. We spend more time and more finances on response versus being on the preparedness and the prevention side, which have a longer term and long impact on the efforts.
Drawing on the experience gained over more than 30 years focused on global polio eradication, as well as the decade of vaccines and Gavi's most recent strategic period, governments, the private sector, non-governmental organizations, and multilateral institutions are poised to work together, initiating a new era of immunization dedicated to protecting all populations from vaccine-preventable disease. As the new agendas move forward, Ensuring equitable distribution of resources, bolstering trust in immunization programs, and continuing to find ways to deliver vaccines within conflicts or disordered settings will be critical. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Take Us Directed. We invite you to subscribe so that you never miss our latest episodes. To keep up to date on our latest work and to watch the conference in its entirety, please visit our Global Health Policy Center program webpage at csis.org.